0: our Old Testament and first scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 50. I'll be reading verses 15 through 21. We're taking a little break from the series on James, in a sense. Pastor Matt is on holidays this week, and he threatened me if I got ahead of him. So I have to do something different than James. But I'll tie it in a little bit with the Count It All Joy theme that we've been pursuing through through this summer so far. But reading first from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw... and spoke kindly to them. Our second reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. The Apostle Paul wrote, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, as we have just prayed in song, Tune our ears to hear your word. Speak to us by your spirit. Speak to us through the ancient words of Moses and of the Apostle Paul. Speak to us in our hearts and let your word take root there, that it may grow and bear fruit to eternal life and to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, people of God, What do you understand by the providence of God? And I would ask that you please join me in the answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. The Westminster larger catechism has it this way, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. And, of course, both statements are absolutely true, and both say the same thing in their own way. The Heidelberg, as always, tends to point us to the benefits that we experience in our lives because of the providence of God, while the Westminster, as always, points to the glory of God, like a compass just zooming in on magnetic north. What neither statement does... And this is important. What neither statement does is to confuse providence with mere provision. And it's important for us to note this because people often do confuse one with the other. There's the similarity in the words providence and provision, and it's easy to make that mistake. God does provide for his people. That's true. That's why we are taught to pray for his provision. We are taught to ask, give us today our daily bread. We are taught to ask God to take care of all of our physical needs because God does provide for his people. But we're not taught to ask God to take care of all of our physical needs simply because our physical needs need taken care of. They do But we are taught to pray in this way, according to the Heidelberg, so that we come to know that God is the source of everything good. That everything we need, everything good that we may have or ever hope to have in this life has to come from God, because if it doesn't come from God, as we've seen in the book of James, then it's really not good. And we are taught to pray this way so that we can learn that neither our work and worry nor God's gifts can do us any good at all without his blessing. In other words, we are taught to ask God to provide for our needs so that in seeking God's provision in our life, we can learn to seek him. That's what we need, especially in this time when In so many evangelical churches, people have become so focused on seeking for the gifts and the blessings of God that they've all but forgotten to seek for the God who gives them. And we too need to learn to give up our trust in creatures and to trust in Him alone. God does provide, that's just the truth. God does provide, and we must rest on this unshakable foundation. Even though we do not deserve it, God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord. This is what he promised in his word, and it is. This is the promise of God. And you've heard me say so many times, God always keeps his promises. He always has, and he always will. God has promised to provide for us, but providence is a different promise. It's not merely the promise of provision, whether or not we think to ask God to supply all our needs. It's the promise that because we belong to him, all things, in fact, must work together for our salvation, for the salvation of his elect. And it's the promise that because this is true, because All things must work together for our salvation, then all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from His fatherly hand. All things, not just the things we know we want or think that we need, all things, leaf and blade. Rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand." The story that I read a little bit earlier from the book of Genesis is a case in point. I started reading at the point in Genesis 50 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, but probably most of us, or all of us, are already aware that that is far from the beginning of the tale. Way back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph had a dream. And not like the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. once claimed to have, It was not a wish or a hope or even some bright imagined future. It was a literal dream in which God showed Joseph that a day would come when his entire family would come before him and bow to the ground. So it wasn't that Joseph felt like he was better than everyone else or had a right to lord it over them. It wasn't that he felt that he was more deserving. I've heard this story cast in so many ways that try to cut the older brothers a little slack for what they're about to do. But Joseph had a dream in which God revealed to him that a day would come. It was a promise when his brothers and his father would come and bow before him. God simply opened his eyes to see something of the future that he was planning, not just for Joseph, but for Joseph's family and for the whole world. And of course his brothers resented the notion. Are you indeed to reign over us, they said? Or are you indeed to rule over us? Apparently, then as now, nobody liked a Mr. Bossy Pants, even if that was only their perception of him. So scripture tells us they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And they found some creative ways of expressing their outrage. Maybe it comes as some consolation to us that Biblical families weren't always the most functional either. First, Joseph's brothers determined to kill him. And they had thrown him into a pit until they figured out exactly how they were going to work that out. But after Reuben, the oldest of the twelve, talked them out of the killing part, they just threw him into a pit that had no water. And then they sold him to a passing band of human traffickers who took him to Egypt and then resold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And even at that point, it's hard to imagine what must have been going through Joseph's head. Did he look to the God who gave him that dream and pray for deliverance from his brothers? Did he ask God for a means to escape the Midianite? Did he just ask for a drop of water to cool his tongue? while his jealous brother stood on the rim of the pit and debated his fate? I think he probably did. Maybe all of those things. It's what we would do, isn't it? God exhorts us, To count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. But our natural inclination when we encounter trials of various kinds is to say, God, get me out of this. Even though it was spoken by our Savior, Jesus Christ, "Let this cup pass from me is a very human way to pray. Regardless, God had no plans to deliver Joseph at that time, no matter what Joseph may have asked for. As we well know, the young man, through no fault of his own, would later fall afoul of Potiphar, too. And just at that point when he might have been tempted to say, well, at least things can't get any worse, they did. And he ended up in the Egyptian equivalent of a federal penitentiary, probably on death row. Some of the other prisoners that he was with were executed. Did he continue to pray? Did he continue to consider the disparity between the promise of the dream that God had given him and the harsh reality of his life in prison? We can assume that he did. And throughout the two years when he must have been certain that he had been abandoned by all, all he could do was to wait and reflect on the words that he spoke to Pharaoh's cupbearer, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, stolen by his own brothers. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Under the circumstances, who could blame him if he had started feeling just, a little bitter about the trajectory of his life. Under the circumstances, even the staunchest Calvinist might find it difficult to confess it is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. Under the circumstances, we might find it very difficult to count it all joy or to heed the admonition do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. After all, it's one thing to be thankful in the fruitful years, it's easy to be thankful when there is plenty of rain and there is food and drink and health and prosperity. In those times when things go well, we don't have to look very hard for a reason to be thankful. Ironically, we often miss it, but we really don't have to look very hard. But God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing All his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, that rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, all things, including drought and sickness and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. If that is true, and it is, then truly we can count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Which is to say that the testing of our faith through those times of struggle and times of trial is just one more part of the way that God is working out his purpose in our lives. It's not as though we are handed a trial... And it's up to us to then turn to God and say, please take this thing away from us. In a very real sense, it's God who handed it to us. And we are to look to him and say, okay, what do you want me to do with this? I'd rather not have it. Jesus himself prayed, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. He also prayed, if it is not possible that it pass from me unless I drink it, then your will be done. And so we have to look at the trials that come our way. as not something that's coming at us independently of the way that God is working in our lives. And this makes sense because for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As we have read so many times, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is why. As Paul explained in our text from his letter to the Colossians, verse 15, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him because he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you're a Bible study a few weeks ago, you know, firstborn here doesn't mean he was the first created being, not in any sense. He's the firstborn in the sense that he is the inheritor of all things. We know that's true because in the very next verse, Paul goes on to say, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now the words that Paul uses, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, are used by him in other passages of Scripture to refer to kind of negative things, the principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness. And this passage is saying all of these things had their origin in him and they were created for him. All things. And he is before all things. Which is only true if he is almighty God. And in him all things hold together. And as if that weren't enough, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that is in all things. Other translations just keep the flow going with that word. In all things, he might be preeminent. Preeminent over all things related to the creation and preservation of the universe. He created it. It was created by him and through him and for him. All things exist for the glory of the creator of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But he is also preeminent over all things to do with our salvation. Our redemption is first, last, and always the work of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. And there's more here than the simple coincidence of the phrase, all things. What we need to see is that it is precisely because Jesus Christ is Lord of creation and Lord of redemption, and therefore preeminent over all things, that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly in hand, And in fact, all things must work together for our salvation. This doesn't mean that we will always get our way or that things will always happen in the way that we would like them to. I remember a couple of churches back in an agricultural area being kind of chided by someone about, well, you know, you don't pray for rain in the right way. And I said, well, what would the right way be? He said, we need about a half an inch of rain every night between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And I thought, oh, okay, weirdly specific, but okay. And the fact that God is in charge of all things, that Jesus is Lord over all things, doesn't mean that we're going to get that if we ask for it. I'm pretty sure we're not. Sometimes there will be abundant rain and there will be fruit and food and health and prosperity. There will. Other times there will be drought and lean years, even sickness and poverty. But it's not as though the good times come from God and the less good times come from somewhere else. Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. Even so, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. He upholds them and he rules them in such a way that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. And maybe that's both a sweet and bitter pill for us to swallow. Certainly it was for a young man who, in the prime of life, found himself forsaken and forgotten by family and friends. His father thought he was dead, his brothers probably hoped that he was dead. And he found himself rotting away in an Egyptian prison, a pit as he himself described it in Genesis chapter 40. But God, through all of that, was about to do something that no one could have anticipated. God was going to take a Hebrew shepherd, and he was going to raise him to the throne of Egypt. Joseph, of course, having some experience with the interpretation of dreams, found himself in a position to advise Pharaoh regarding the seven-year famine that God was about to send on the land after seven years of plenty. Talk about providence. Joseph said, God has shown Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of drought and famine. Both are the work of God. Remember, leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years come not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall rule over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. But think about it if his brothers had not plotted to kill him and then decided instead to sell him into slavery, if he hadn't been sold to that passing band of Midianites and if they hadn't sold him to Potiphar and if Potiphar's wife hadn't accused Joseph of rape, making sure that he ended up in this terrible prison, side by side with Pharaoh's butler and Pharaoh's baker, then Joseph would not have had the opportunity to interpret their dreams. If he hadn't interpreted their dreams, he wouldn't have been recalled to Pharaoh when Pharaoh had a troubling dream so that he could interpret that, and he wouldn't have even been in Egypt for God to raise to the throne. So step by step through all of those horrible things, God was at work in Joseph's life. And here's another thing, Genesis 41, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But he was only 17 when he dreamed that his brothers would come and bow before him. So 13 years of slavery, imprisonment, and suffering. 13 years to shape Joseph into the person that God wanted him to be and to bring him to the place that God had intended for him all along. Because it was in Egypt, when he ascended to the throne of Pharaoh, that the promise God had made in that dream from his boyhood would actually come true. 13 years and several more years would go by. Before the promise was actually fulfilled, and Joseph's brothers, the same brothers who plotted his death and then sold him into slavery, would come and bow down. But God had made a promise, and God keeps his promises. And he accomplishes his purpose in our lives. And he does so not in spite of the trials and the difficulties, he does so through the trials and the difficulties. Even Joseph's brothers, when their fathers had died, worried that maybe the second in command over all Egypt would finally have his revenge. They had, after all, plotted to kill the second most powerful man in the world of that day. So they came before him, fell down, and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good. And that's the only thing that really matters. God meant it for good. As we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, Providence is the Almighty And ever present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them. That leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. So then, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Again, join me in the answer, please. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. So because Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the promise of God, and God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Father, give us good confidence in you and in your Son, and in your Holy Spirit, our faithful God, that the future is solidly in your hands, that nothing comes our way by accident, but, Father, that everything that comes our way comes from your fatherly hand as you work out in us your purpose, for your glory, for the building up of your church, and, Father, for the reconciliation of the world to Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is preeminent in all things and that because he is preeminent in all things, we know that all things truly must work together for the good of those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. We pray in his name. Amen.